you've been saved, you've been set free, you've been redeemed. That's your salvation. So what does it look like? Know your salvation. Join us for our series on salvation out of 2 Peter next on today's broadcast of Graceful Truth with Steve Converse. From Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City, hello and welcome to today's broadcast of Graceful Truth. Our teacher and pastor, Steve Converse, has us in a series in 2 Peter. Today we want to take a look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, as we continue this series called Know Your Salvation. We're going to take a look at the source of our salvation, that we have obtained it, and it is by faith. And we also want to focus in on 2 Corinthians as well as Ephesians along the way. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, we have attained this salvation. It's an exciting study. Join us with this edition of Graceful Truth, our teacher and pastor once again now, Pastor Steve Converse. He also classifies himself here as a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, which is an interesting classification because he wants people to know that, first of all, he's a servant, or some translations say bond servant. Okay, basically it should say slave, that's the word. But because we live in an age of political correctness, we don't use words like slave. But really it should be Simon Peter, a slave of Jesus Christ, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. It's a good balance, if you stop and think about it, you know, between humility, being a servant, being a slave, and being an apostle. One speaks of of humility, one speaks of servanthood, the other speaks of leadership, of authority, of someone who's being sent out as a representative of the living Christ. It's a perfect balance for a spiritual leader. He's a servant, he's a slave, and yet he's still a leader. When you think of a slave, you think of somebody who is in submission to somebody else, right? I mean, that's what a slave is. It's a slave who is in, put in a place of obedience of others. They're, they're called to submit. They don't have a choice. That really puts them in a place of humility. And what he's doing here is he's putting us on all the same level. Because if you know Jesus Christ, we're called to be his slave. We're called to be his servant. And all throughout Scripture, you see Moses, Joshua, David, all these people, Paul, they were all servants. They were all slaves of their God. And so Peter's identifying himself with all of us. Even though he was an apostle of Jesus Christ, he spent time with the living Lord. He did miracles. He did all this stuff. He was chosen by Christ himself. But he still says, you know what? I'm still a servant, just like you're a servant. There's no classifications in Christianity. And when you begin to make those classifications and you begin to say, oh, well, here are the Christians that have this and the the have-nots and the haves and all. Boy, you're really dividing the body of Christ. And the Word of God never tells us to do that. So it's, it's good to understand that we're all in this together. Amen. We're all sinners in need of grace and the Savior. We start there. William Barclay wrote this about the idea of of being a slave or servanthood. He said, in the ancient world, a master possessed his slaves in the same way that he possessed his tools. A servant can change his master, but a slave cannot. The Christian inalienably belongs to God. To call the Christian the slave of God means that he is unqualifiably at the disposal of God. In the ancient world, the master could do what he liked with his slave. He had the 
same power over his slave as he had over the inanimate objects he possessed. The Christian belongs to God, for God to send him where he will and to do with him what he will. The Christian is the man or woman who has no rights of his or her own. To call the Christian the slave of God means that the Christian owes an unquestioning obedience to God. To call the Christian the slave of God means that he must be constantly in the service of God. The slave had literally no time of his own, no holidays, no time off, no working hours settled by agreement, no leisure. All of his time belonged to the master. The Christian is necessarily the man every moment of whose life and time is spent in the service of God, end quote. Wow. When's the last time you heard that describe the Christian life? You're a slave of God. See, the slave was well known in ancient time. And so here for Peter to say that he was a slave of Jesus Christ meant that he was a humble servant. That he was bound to duty to do whatever the Lord wanted him to do. That was Peter. But he also says there that he's what? He's an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he, on one hand, comes to the, the pen here and he describes his servanthood, his humility. But on the other hand, it's almost like to say, hey, don't think I'm a doormat. <laughs> Because I'm not. I'm an apostle. Well, what was an apostle? That, that term means to be sent forth officially by someone, this person being Jesus Christ. See, to be elevated to the office of apostle, you had to have certain things in order. You had to be divinely called by the risen Lord. You had to be commissioned as a witness of the resurrected Christ. The office of apostle is no longer in effect today because there's nobody going around seeing the risen Lord and being selected by him to be an apostle. The Bible says that our Lord is in heaven. He's not in the business of going around appointing apostles. Now, we're all apostles in the general sense. We're all sent ones. You know, the Great Commission makes that clear. But the official office of apostle doesn't exist anymore. And it, it contains some certain things. The office of apostle, all the apostles experience supernatural, miraculous workings through them. Signs and wonders, things that would just blow our mind. Raising the dead, healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, all those things. All the works that Jesus did when he was alive, he kind of transferred that power to the apostles. Because the church was just giving birth, it was just getting started, and they needed that kind of affirmation of their authority. If they just went out on their own without having those supernatural abilities, people probably wouldn't even give them a second glance. But when they went into a town, and there was somebody sick, and they went up and said, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk, and the person did... You could see where that would give a little more emphasis to the message that they carried. And until the church was established, that's the kind of focus that was needed on them. But after the church was established, it says that the church was founded on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. After that was done, well, they, it went away. And that's what the scriptures teach. And so he served, and yet he had this God-given authority. He was under Christ, and yet he was a representative of Christ. Very much like us today. I mean, we're servants of God, but we're also sent ones. We don't hold the official name of apostle or office of apostle, but we're very much sent ones for the cause of Christ. And so there's a, there's a model there for us in our spiritual walk. It's a mixture of both humility and God-given authority and leadership. You know, sometimes you meet people that are so humble that they're, it's almost, 
You know, it's like milk toast. They're, they're just not, you, they can't stand on their own feet. And that's not what God calls us to do. We're not to be doormats where people just walk over us. Oh, yeah, I'm just bearing this cross for Christ. No. Sometimes you have to exert authority. Sometimes you have to be the leader that God called you and gifted you to be. And sometimes that comes supernaturally. I mean, personally, I don't, I'm not into confronting people. I don't like to confront people. I, I shy away from that. You know, if some, something needs to be confronted, I'm usually not the person that you'll pick to go do it. I just don't like it. It's not in my personality. Have I had to confront people at times? Definitely. Was it easy? No, but God gave me the ability to do it. So different people, and then you have other people that that's all they do. Right? I mean, Mr. Confrontation, you know? They're just pointing out everything to everybody about everybody else. And, you know, the Word of God speaks about those people too, right? You might want to look in your own eye first. Uh, check out things first before you go around pointing your finger at somebody else. So it's got to be a balance. It can't be one or the other. And that's, that's the purpose here of him sharing, I think, these two names. And the idea that he was a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then it says in verse 1, to those, to those. Well, who are those? We already kind of discussed this a little bit. This is the second letter that Peter's writing to these people. And he said in verse 1 of chapter 3, it's the second letter that I'm writing to you. And in both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of remembrance. So he's bringing, he's writing in a way that's saying, hey, I got to remind you about some things. I know I already wrote you once. Well, who is he writing to? He's writing to those people who were part of the dispersia and they were, they were spread all over those different countries. We read that in verse 1 of 1 Peter 1. And so he's writing to uh, Christians here, but mostly those who were scattered among the Gentile World, We don't know specifically. He doesn't say this is to this person or that church. It's just a general group of believers who are scattered all over the place. Predominantly Gentiles. But obviously there's probably some Jews in there as well who came to faith in Christ. Uh, the, the, the letter here was written from Rome, even like First Peter was, probably around 67, 68, somewhere around there. So he was a prisoner at this time. As a prison epistle, he was facing death. He makes that clear a couple times. He says, pretty soon I'm going to die, you know, in in so many words. Um, And tradition tells us that he did die. He was crucified upside down. But when we come to the last half of this verse 1, he begins to start this aspect of understanding some knowledge that we need to know. And he begins with our own salvation. He begins sharing with us, really, where does this salvation come from? What's the source of our salvation? Because he says to those, and then he says this, the next words are very critical. He says, who have obtained, who have obtained, If you've obtained something, the idea here in this word is that you've received it as a gift. It's not you working real hard for your money and then going out and purchasing something yourself. It's not talking about that. It's really talking about something that is is gained by divine will. Something that God gives you. 
The same word there is used when they used to uh, draw lots. They would draw lots in in Bible times sometimes to reveal God's will. They would say, okay, you know what, we're going to put these marbles in a bag and, you know, whatever. And, you know, if this one turns up, then it means this. If this stick falls out, whatever, it means that. And it was a way to attain divine will. It really means here to receive something by divine will. It's not something that you work for. So... It's very clear, if you understand our salvation and the source of our salvation, that it comes from who? It doesn't come from us. It comes from God. It clearly refers to something not attained by personal effort. So it's important that you understand that, that that our salvation isn't something that we get because simply we want it. That doesn't meet the standard. It's, It's really something... Their faith was because God willed to give it to them. You're at the mercy of God, beloved. You can't save yourself. You know, that's why we shouldn't be like the Pharisee who stands on the corner and praying in all his robes and his glitter and all this stuff so that people look at him and say, oh, look at how religious he is. No, we shouldn't be like that person. Jesus said that you should be like the guy who's over in the corner, not even willing to show his face, but beating his breast. Be merciful to me, God, a sinner. See, that's the, the salvation prayer that God will hear. You don't march into God's presence and say, hey, you owe me salvation. Now I'm here and I'm asking for you. You need to get, you're not going to get anything from God that way. The Bible says you have to come humbly. You have to come broken. You have to come understanding that he's your last chance. There's no other way for you to be saved outside of calling upon the divine name and work of Jesus Christ. There's no back door. There's no third or second choice doesn't work that way. There's only one way. Jesus said it himself. I'm the way, the truth, and the what? The life. No man comes to the Father but through me. You say, well, that sounds kind of narrow. Well, it is. Take that up with God. I didn't make that. He did, you know? So there's, there's one gate. It's a narrow gate, and you better make sure that you're going to get through that gate. Because if you don't, it says broad is the way to destruction. There is a place called hell that's very real. And you will endure the wrath of God for all eternity if you end up there. So it's, it's very important that you understand that, you know, what, what Peter is saying here is that I'm writing to those who have obtained a faith because God gave it to them, who received the faith. Does he just mean general teaching? What's he talking about here? See, he's not talking about doctrine because there's only kind of one doctrine, one body of doctrine here that's true. But he's talking about really the power to believe. He's talking about the power to believe in God for your salvation. Where does that come from? And what he's saying is, you know what? The only way that you could ever possibly believe in Jesus Christ is if God gave you the power and the desire. It's all God. It's you nothing. And we have a problem with that sometimes because we realize that it's kind of a humiliating, humble doctrine. The doctrine that God grants to us, our faith. The doctrine that God chooses us, Ephesians says, before the foundation of the world. You mean, God, you chose me before I was ever even born? You didn't know that you didn't see me playing the piano and say, oh, I'll use him. 
Or you didn't see this person's good looks and say, oh, that, that would be a good representative for me. Or you didn't see that person's gifting and say, oh, they would be wonderful. I need that person on my team. See, sometimes I think we think that God's lined us all up against the wall, like in gym class. You remember in gym class when you used to have to pick teams? I used to hate that. You know, you'd all line up, and then they'd get some super jocks, two super jocks out there that were, you know, incredible sports, and they'd begin to pick. Usually I wasn't one of the first ones picked. It was kind of humiliating. That's how we think sometimes that God is choosing us. Well, who's the most strapping? Who's, who's going to do the most for my kingdom? And that's the opposite of what the Bible says, right? He said he's chosen what? The foolish things of this world to confound the wise. So the next time you call yourself a Christian, just know you're calling yourself a fool. Right? That's right. A fool for Christ. Amen. And that's, it's so important that we, we don't have an inflated look about ourselves and about our own spiritual being. Because you know what? There's nothing there to be inflated. We're nothing without the grace of God. Absolutely nothing. He gives us that faith that power to believe unto salvation. And then he says there also that it's a faith of equal standing with ours. It's a faith of equal standing with ours. You know, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you're saved through faith. It's not of yourself. What? It's a gift of God. Salvation, including the faith to believe, is part of the gift that God gives us. Matter of fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, it tells us this. And even if our gospel is veiled or shielded, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Verse 4, it says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded, listen, the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Wow. Next time you begin to judge unbelievers for whatever begin to realize that, you know what? God has to work in their lives. It's not like you can take an unbeliever and say, okay, I'm going to teach you how to be a Christian. You can't do that. Matter of fact, we have a lot of people in the churches today that went through that very process. We took people that maybe raised their hand or whatever. We said, well, now we got to teach you how, what a Christian is. And so they learn all about Christianity. They learn the lingo. They learn what to do, what not to do. And then they try to live this Christian life and after a couple of weeks, they're utterly frustrated and realize, what is this? this is, and they, they find themselves at odds. They come to church and they're one person, but the rest of the week out in the world, they're totally somebody else. And the two don't match. And that adds just depression and frustration. And they end up just being frustrated with the whole thing. And usually they just walk away from the church entirely saying, you know what? It doesn't work. Well, the fact of the matter is, is they never really tried the real thing. They never were really truly saved. Because if you're truly saved, beloved... You know what? I don't care if you have anybody to disciple you or not. God's going to take care of his own. He's going to provide people around you. I mean, I, I was a case in point. I was saved when I was 19 out of the Catholic Church. Didn't have a clue about the Bible. Nothing. Went right back to a secular college. But you know what? God put a desire in me. And I took my old King James Bible, Schofield Reference Bible, and I started to read it, even though it was hard to understand. And I just had a desire to try to understand it. And I realized something inside me said, you know what? You need to go to church. I mean, I had that as a Catholic anyway growing up. I went to Mass every week for 19 years. Sometimes more than once. But I remember thinking, well, I don't know where to go to church. You know, I wasn't going to ask some 
college buddies that didn't know the Lord, I, you know, they were already making fun of me for reading my Bible. I thought, well, I saw a steeple thing down the road here. It was First Baptist Church of Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. That's where I ended up. Very fundamentalist, rigid church. But you know what? I learned a lot of neat things from those people in a couple of years. Learned what it meant to serve Christ. You know, I had nobody alongside of me showing me step by step. But I had the Holy Spirit within me. See, so don't, I mean, I believe in discipleship. Don't get me wrong. But sometimes I think we start that whole process prematurely with people. And they don't even know Christ yet. And we're assuming they do. And so we're trying to teach them all these doctrines and they don't have a clue. Let's wait a little bit and see if God truly has transformed them from the inside out. Because if he has, then it's going to be evident. Romans 12 says, For the grace, for through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Our faith comes from God. It's all equal. We all get the same faith, saving faith. Ephesians 6.23 says, Peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All that comes from God. Even in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, it says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. But it has been granted to you by, God's, by God for Christ's sake to believe. God grants us our faith that we believe. You can't believe unless God gives it to you through the faith that he gives you. So we need to get our theology right, especially when we're out there evangelizing people. Sometimes we go out and we evangelize people and we think, okay, we're going to talk this person into the kingdom. No, you're not. You're not. You may talk them into church. They're still going to hell, but they're coming to church. That doesn't help anybody. We need to wait on God and see what God is, is activating in their heart, see if they're responsive to the gospel. Jesus, when he shared with people, he would always give grace to the humble and the law to the proud. When people are prideful, they need to understand that they're not matching up to what God's law says. But you don't take somebody who is, is humbled and throw the law at them. No, you give them the grace of God. So many times we're too quick to give the grace of God before people understand that they're lost. So this, this faith is one of equal standing. It's equal privilege. Everybody has the same faith. And then he says there, quickly in closing, he says, By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, we have this faith to believe and we're saved because God's righteousness is given to us. This isn't a righteousness of our own. It isn't something we conjure up from within and try to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and live a new life or start a new, turn over a new leaf. That's not what we're talking about here. It's something that it says that's the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's imputed to us. It's set upon us. Romans 3.26 says, For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, when one puts their faith in Jesus, it's a God-given faith. And it's God who justifies that person. It's God who makes us righteous. We don't make ourselves righteous. Going to church doesn't make you righteous. 
Giving tithes and offerings does not make you righteous. Romans 4, 5 says, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies or makes righteous the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. It's not about what you do, beloved. It's about what was done on your behalf. I mean, that's the only kind of righteousness that's going to save you, is the righteousness that God gives you, the righteousness that God gives you that covers your sin, that makes you acceptable to God. That's his point. God makes us righteous. God grants his righteousness to us. We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Well, it is our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal his grace to your hearts through the teaching of his word each week. We trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade five. If you'd like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. This is our phone number, 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. Or you can visit us on the web at gracefultruth.org. We've got a lot of resource materials available there, more information about who we are. And if you need a map to visit us at Grace Bible Church, that's there as well. Again, gracefultruth.org. And would you please drop us an email? Let us know you paid us a visit when you stop by. Again, gracefultruth.org. Or give us a call at 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. We thank you for joining us today and trust we'll see you again next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth. Graceful Truth.